when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The Liberal Democrats thrashed the Conservatives in the North Shropshire by-election on Thursday, marking the end of a dire week for Boris Johnson. We brought new hope uh, to the whole nation who've been so worried and fed up with Boris Johnson. We've now beaten the Conservatives in two of their safest seats this year. I think the Liberal Democrats have now proven the Conservatives can be beaten and beaten anywhere. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. In our last normal episode of 2021, we'll be analysing that remarkable by-election outcome, which you heard Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, celebrating at the top. On top of two of the biggest parliamentary defeats of his career as Prime Minister, we'll be looking at just how much trouble Boris Johnson is in and whether he's about to face a leadership challenge. Political editor George Parker and chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will analyse. And later... We'll be looking at the coronavirus situation following a huge rise in case numbers and whether the NHS is at risk of being overwhelmed this winter. Will Plan B work or will Plan C be required? And what would that look like? And with the Bank of England rising rates for the first time in years, how will the economy cope? Health editor Sarah Neville and economics editor Chris Giles will discuss. Robert and George, welcome back. Hi, sir. Hello, sir. Well, we've staggered. We've made it to the end of the year. It's been quite the political. I dread to think all the things we've been here and talked about and written about through lockdowns, working at home, working in the office. And we're sort of ending on a slightly bleak note with the COVID situation getting worse. But give us a cheery, upbeat sign of how things are going. George, what are your Christmas plans? Well, like last year, Seb, I'll be working um, up until Christmas Eve, but hopefully it won't be quite as mad as last Christmas Eve, which, which, as you may remember, was the moment at which the Brexit deal came together. And I was actually in Sainsbury's at the time buying a Christmas pudding. I had to rush back, but I had to drop the Christmas pudding at the checkout and drive back at high speed to my house to cover it. Well, Robert, hopefully I'm going to make some time to see my family and that fingers crossed we don't get any more restrictions. I can make it up to the north of England. What about yourself? Uh, well, to be honest with you, Seb, I think if I'm just able to spend um, the day in the room with other people, that'll be a victory at the moment. I think certainly in London, COVID is spreading very widely. I would just say, I, I, George, talking about Christmas pudding reminded me that last year I, the Christmas shopping arrived from you know delivery about two or three days before Christmas. And my Christmas pudding had been substituted for jam tarts by the... Uh, by the supermarket. And I remember going on a frantic rush around London to find a Christmas pudding to celebrate with, because that's a pretty important part of my day. The good news is we found one in the end, but it was a struggle. God, what a grim message there for the end for the end of last year. Well, let's move on to our main discussion of the week. It has been one of the worst weeks of Boris Johnson's career. On Tuesday, he lost a pair of crucial parliamentary votes on COVID restrictions by nearly 100 votes as party discipline collapsed and almost half of his backbenchers rebelled against him. And then on Thursday, the voters of North Shropshire sent a clear message to the PM with the seventh biggest by-election swing in history. But what was it about? 
Helen Morgan, the first ever non-Tory MP for North Shropshire, said that that by-election was all about the Prime Minister. Tonight, the people of North Shropshire have spoken on behalf of the British people. They've said loudly and clearly, Boris Johnson, the party is over. Your government, run on lies and bluster, will be held accountable. It will be scrutinised, it will be challenged, and it can and will be defeated. Well, George, you've been up since the early hours of Friday morning. Look at this by-election result. And dare I say it, there's nothing you enjoy more than a, a good old Lib Dem victory in a by-election. Um, what a result, though, overturning a 23,000 Tory majority. And you and I have spoken to people all throughout this week on both sides. And we got a very clear impression on Wednesday that the Lib Dems thought they were going to win, the Tories thought they were going to lose. And I was still thought it might be expectations management, but it turns out it wasn't. Yeah, there was a bit of a last-minute flurry of bets on the Tories, but um, by the time the uh, polling stations closed at 10, the money was piling in on the Liberal Democrats. And in the end, of course, it wasn't even close, you know, a 6,000 majority. So it's right up there with sort of the big historic uh, Liberal Democrat uh, by-election victories that we've known and loved, some of them sort of, you know, politically insignificant, as it turned out. And it's very hard to tell whether this one will be more significant. Some of them have been significant, you know, thinking back to the 1990 Eastbourne by-election result, which heralded the downfall of Margaret Thatcher. You know, will we look back on this one as a moment where, which was a tipping point as far as the Conservative Party was concerned in its relationship with Boris Johnson? You know, I think it's obviously early hours of Friday into Saturday. It's too early to say that. And Boris Johnson does have some breathing space over Christmas, I think, to try and get his act together and try to think of a way of resetting his administration and his premiership after Christmas. But it's a very, very heavy blow for the Tories and will set alarm bells ringing right across the party. And Robert, one of the most extraordinary things about the result is that in recent years, at least since 2016, where have the Liberal Democrats done well? In cities, where there's lots of young people, in Remain areas. And North Shropshire is a beautiful part of the country, but doesn't really have any of those things. And this goes back to the 90s that George was saying, where the Liberal Democrats were benefiting for the decline and fall of John Major's government. Um, and it looks as if they're doing the same again. Why do you think the Lib Dems did so well in this particular battle? The key factor here is the massive Tory abstention. I mean, the Tory vote simply collapsed. This is a seat where they, I think they had 67% of the vote in, in the last general election. Their vote totally collapsed. Their, their supporters simply said, looked at this government and said, I just don't feel like voting for these people at the moment. If you look at the combined Labour and Lib Dem vote in this by-election, it's a bit higher than it was and the general election, but not massively so. But what I think you can say, and we'll have to get into the psychology a bit later when we know more, but what I think you can say is that the anti-Tory forces mobilised very effectively and picked the vehicle, which was the Liberal Democrats, and the Conservatives, for the most part, stayed at home. Some may have switched, but for the most part, they simply thought, I'm not voting for these people. They don't deserve my vote at the moment. And therefore, I think the thing that is both the one consolation, but also the longer-term worry for the Conservatives in terms of looking at this by-election is that, okay, people didn't cross over to other parties in very large numbers. They simply didn't bother voting. That's a bit of a relief for the Conservative Party, and it wasn't the Labour Party that won. But the biggest issue is that enough of their people are so angry and so fed up that they didn't bother to vote. And it's very clear they're angry and fed up with Boris Johnson, who inflicted this wound on his party. And the big impact of this, I think, is that by-elections, you know, it's very easy to dismiss them because they so often get um, overturned at general election, but they set the temperature for Westminster. They normally have one single message that politicians distill from them. The message that they will have distilled from this is Boris Johnson was a liability in this by-election. And if they continue to think that through 
the first half of next year, right through to the local elections, then he's in very, very severe trouble. Well, obviously, everyone's trying to say this was about local issues or about Boris Johnson, but Oliver Dowden, who's chair of the Conservative Party, went out on the broadcast rounds on Friday to say this is a typical midterm performance. It is the case that people have sent us a message. We've heard that message, but I wouldn't extrapolate too much due to the general. I have no idea where the letters are, are being written, but I have every confidence the Prime Minister has the leadership to see us through this period. Well, George, the question with this is, obviously, is this just a typical midterm result? Because, as Robert said, Tories sitting at home being annoyed at the government, annoyed at Boris Johnson. That's not maybe too unusual. But I guess because so much of Boris Johnson's premiership rests on the fact he's an election winner and the party isn't in love with him, but it tolerates him while he's winning elections, when he doesn't win elections, that makes him especially vulnerable to a challenge which has been all the talk of Westminster this week. Yeah, and part of it is the fact that so much of this has been self-inflicted. It was a by-election which didn't need to happen. It hadn't been for Boris Johnson trying to prop up Owen Paterson by ripping up the standards rules in the House of Commons. Owen Paterson probably could have served his 30-day suspension would still be an MP. Then the self-inflicted wounds over the parties in Downing Street and elsewhere around Whitehall, which Boris Johnson made worse by denying they took place in, in the first place. And then if you add that in together with the fact that, as you say, there's no deep love for Boris Johnson in the parliamentary party, they are starting to wonder whether, first of all, he's an electoral liability, and secondly, whether he's got any idea of how to make things better rather than to make them much worse. And I agree with Robert. I think that the next few months of 2022 are going to be absolutely critical for Boris Johnson. People sometimes say, is he finished now? Well, look, it's very difficult to organise a coup when all of your MPs are out in their constituency homes and doing their Christmas shopping or whatever it might be. When they come back, if this catalogue of mistakes continues, if Boris Johnson doesn't do something about the way he runs his his administration, and that means making some fairly significant changes in his team, I would argue, and if he keeps on losing elections like the one in North Shropshire and then has a bad run into the May local elections, then he is in serious trouble. Now, Robert, let's just look at those parliamentary votes. So on Tuesday, the latest COVID regulations, the so-called Plan B, which is mask wearing, vaccine certification for large venues, um, removing some self-isolation requirements if you're in contact with someone with COVID and you're double jabbed, and the work from home order. So those four things went through and the backlash from Conservative MPs was really quite astounding that there were two votes and Again, a lot of expectations management going on this week, but it seems like a complete collapse in the Conservative whipping operation that there was talk on Tuesday before the vote that, you know, it, it might be 60, it might be 80. But in fact, or in two of those votes, 100 Conservative MPs voted against the Prime Minister after a personal plea he made at the 1922 committee. What do you think went wrong for the Prime Minister there? Well, I mean, I think you certainly can put a bit of blame on the whipping operation, although Plan B was rushed through very... And one of the techniques that that the government has been using with its own party in the last year is rushing things through as fast as they can if things are going to be contentious so as to minimise the revolt. And I think that was done on this occasion, or that may also be just a reflection of the need to react quickly. Fundamentally, they asked their, he asked his MPs to do something they didn't want to do. And I'm not sure that a really effective whipping operation could have made any difference at the moment when they're so fed up with the Prime Minister, when they're so angry about COVID regulations. And more important, I think, in this occasion is that the Labour Party, having agreed to whip, to, to vote for the government's measures, all the Tory MPs who wanted to rebel knew they had a free hit because they weren't actually going to defeat the government. I think those things combined with the 
run of errors, starting with Ann Patterson and running all the way through to these, not just the Downing Street parties, but the evasions over the Downing Street parties. The run of these errors has just left Conservative MPs, you know, rather like the voters in North Shropshire, just not minded to do what they're told at the moment. The, The one that really, really irritated them, I think, was the notion of the vaccine passes to get into nightclubs and to large sporting events. They managed to get a bit of movement on that, so it would also be negative test on lateral flow would also be acceptable. But, you know, they don't like that. They think this is a civil liberties issue. And they also, a lot of them think it just won't work very well. On top of which, they're just not minded to support restrictions on on COVID if they can possibly avoid it. So I think all those things combined to show a prime minister who was not in control of his party at the moment. That's the fundamental point. When Boris Johnson's riding high, when any conservative leader is riding high, they get to bully their MPs into doing what they're told. The key point here is there's a lot of MPs who are simply not going to be listening to him at the moment. Well, George, because we were outside that 1922 committee meeting in a very nice COVID safe situation where we were masked up. I think most of the Tories were, but they were all packed in a cheek by jowl and meeting. And the Prime Minister was actually seen to have done quite a good performance. He was serious. He turned up with notes. He made the case for these measures and said, I want us to be as free as possible. And there is no alternative to that. And when we came out of that meeting, ministers came by and said the rebellion is collapsing. It's going to be okay, even if it's a bit damaging. And in fact, it didn't collapse at all. It really feels as if the whipping operation, the party is just not up to scratch. There's a lot of talk that Mark Spence, the chief whip, is going to have to be moved on. There's going to need to be new people in that office because they seem to miss about 20 MPs. And some of the 2019 intake Tories told me they haven't even got a phone call from the whip's office. That's a pretty bad problem, isn't it? If you don't know how much trouble you're in, <laughs> then that is a, that's a very worrying thing. You know, an hour before that key vote, you know, that the whips had, were flying blind. They had no idea how the party was going to vote. And so, yes, I mean, it's a, it's a very bad failure on the part of the whips office. I mean, the whips office should at least have been involved in spotting the disaster that was about to unfold when it came to the Owen Patterson affair and Boris Johnson's disastrous attempt to suspend the standard system in the House of Commons. And just just picking up on the sort of the general mood about this, yes, of course, the vote on earlier this week was about specifically on COVID passes to enter nightclubs and, and other big events. But really, it goes beyond that, because what people don't like in the Conservative Party is the idea that the, the COVID pass is a symbol of what they think is Boris Johnson's dangerous addiction to the idea of a big active state. So whether it's telling people how to live their lives during COVID or whether it's presiding over the biggest tax burden this country has had since 1950 or the high levels of public borrowing, all of these things make people think there's something not quite Tory about Boris Johnson. And if you stir into that all the other doubts they have about them, which is the way he runs things, his propriety, his honesty, and now the killer blow potentially, the fact that he doesn't seem to know how to win elections in safe Tory seats, That's a dangerous brew for any prime minister. Now, Robert, of course, there's been a lot of excitable talk about letters. And just to clarify what this means for listeners, that if you want to challenge a Conservative leader, there has to be 15% of MPs who write letters of no confidence into Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee. Now, those letters then trigger a ballot, a straight up and down vote. Do you have confidence or not? And that needs a majority of MPs. And if we think back to the halcyon days of 2018, enough Conservative Brexiters got letters into Theresa May 
but they didn't have the numbers to win a confidence vote and she was therefore safe for year. Now, I think we've ascertained that there are letters going in, that there's a good dozen in there at the moment, but still nowhere near the 54 required. Do you think a challenge is imminent or, as George was saying earlier, is it more going to be seeing how the first half of 2022 plays out? I'm inclined to, to agree with George. I think there are a couple of points on this. As Parliament's rising, I don't think there's any need for it to happen now. No one really wants to see a leadership election in the middle of a COVID crisis. So he's got a little bit of breathing space in that respect. And by, by the time we're through the Omicron issue, you know, people will say, well, let's give it till the local elections in May and let's see how we do there. And I think that's going to be the trigger point for him. I think if the local elections are disastrous, then he could well face leadership challenge. If they are OK, then Conservatives may relax. I think there are a couple of points to make in terms of the leadership challenge. As you said, one of the key things is if you have a vote of no confidence in the leader and he wins it, he's safe for another year. So if you do want to get rid of him, you want to get the timing on this right. You want to make sure you have a decent shot. And I think that means a degree of organisation to get the letters in and mobilise for the subsequent vote. If one thinks back to the Theresa May challenge, there were people like Steve Baker who were organising to get the letters in to make sure that they had the right numbers and they pushed to push it through. And even then it didn't work. So I think you'll need to see a degree of organisation to get him out. At the moment, I think it's more disparate voices and anger rather than a coordinated campaign. And equally, they don't want to fire their shot and lose it. So I think they'll, we will see how it goes into the summer, but that is going to have consequences because it means he's going to be more nervous of his backbenchers. He's going to be more keen to pander to them a little bit. And I think actually, in a sense, that's the problem for him because what he needs to show is very, very clear and firm leadership. He needs to suggest to his party that he's still got it in him to take the country with him and lead in the right direction. If he's constantly looking over his shoulder at his backbenchers, he's actually going to end up looking weaker rather than stronger. And finally, George, obviously, I think we both agree that there's not going to be an immediate challenge to Boris Johnson at this exact moment. But once again, it's saying he needs to reform his Downing Street team. And we've obviously got that inquiry that's still ongoing at the time of recording into the various parties or non-parties that took place inside number 10. And we'll see how that unfolds and whether that's going to lead to junior heads rolling over the Christmas period. But, you know, do you think He's really going to change that much because I think Robert sort of got to this in his column that Boris Johnson is a very particular kind of politician. You know, he's a man who's 57. Is he really going to change how he operates? Is he going to bring in a chief of staff who will get things into shape? Will he bring in a more powerful chief whip or will he continue just to muddle on through? Nothing will fundamentally change. And then at some point, Conservative MPs will have to just decide for themselves, look, either we put up with this or we don't. Well, as you say, Robert wrote a very good column on this the other day about draining the swamp and raising the question of whether Boris Johnson was himself the swamp. No, he's not going to change, but he has shown himself in the past ready to delegate and to have trusted advisors around him who were able to run a show, notably at City Hall, where you have people like Eddie Lister and Kit Malthouse around him who were delegated to do a lot of the heavy lifting while Boris Johnson set the tone of the administration. He does need to do something. I mean, the Downing Street operation seems to be unable to look around corners uh, and see what's what's coming down the track. It has a whipping operation, which is basically seems to be going around in, with a blindfold on in terms of working out what's going on inside the party itself. And there's a dangerous sign that a party within a party is starting to form. And that's a really dangerous thing for any prime minister. But I think he does need to change his team. Whether he actually does it, you know, one of the, Boris Johnson's redeeming qualities or potentially a flaw is he's quite loyal to people. 
But uh, he's in serious danger and he needs to do something very quickly in 2022 to sort this out. Well, George and Robert, thank you very much. Now, those Plan B rules we talked about earlier have been introduced, but the COVID situation in the UK is pretty dire. We've seen two of the highest caseload numbers this week, but also a significant rise in the number of booster jabs being delivered. But there's still huge questions across the health service and Whitehall on whether the NHS can cope without extra restrictions. Speaking at a Downing Street press conference, England's Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty said the situation was pretty dire. This is a record number of cases. I'm afraid we have to be realistic that records will be broken a lot over the next few weeks as the rates continue to go up. If we look at the overall rates, it looks as if Delta, which we've had with us for a while, is still flat and the growth is Omicron. So what we've got is two epidemics on top of one another. Well, Sarah Neville, it's great to have you back on the podcast as always. Is Chris Whitty right? Is the situation bad? And how do you see it panning out over the next couple of weeks? The situation is bad. And I was actually texted not 10 minutes ago by a a, a frontline NHS source of mine saying that the health service is now working on the assumption that by mid-January, everybody will either have been triple vaccinated or have caught COVID. So this is a situation that takes us into uncharted waters. But there are perhaps some slightly more reassuring signs. A a lot of the growth so far has been in the under 60s in London. And that's a relatively unvaccinated group compared with the rest of the country. That, I think, offers some hope that this rate of increase won't continue because it has been absolutely astonishing and has, I think, very much taken even government advisers by surprise. I know even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, they were hoping that Omicron would not become the dominant strain until the new year. But it's clearly already the case that that it is in London, I think also in Manchester, and probably for the whole of the country in a week or so. But I think the sheer speed with which people are becoming infected does have a sort of natural ceiling. And this really very scary and alarming, I think, to most of us, rate of increase is, is highly unlikely to continue for long. Well, Chris Charles, when you look at the situation in terms of the case numbers, it's obviously clear that Omicron is here and it's spreading. And that's one of the reasons the UK dropped all the countries from the red list of border restrictions, because there's no real way they control it. We've got these plan B measures in place, which include face masks, working from home and vaccine passports for big venues. What's the economic impact of these measures? Because it looks as if the government's done the lightest possible touch it can, but that, of course, leads to a question of health-wise, are they going to be effective? The economic measures of face masks and whether we call them vaccine passports or not, the measures at large venues is very, very little indeed. So that is not going to hurt the economy. What hurts the economy, what we've learned since March 2020, is having a big wave of the virus. And that's the thing that really hurts. That is because not only do is government forced to put in measures to protect the health service and to protect people, but also people protect themselves by not going out. And that's what we're seeing right at the moment. So the best way to control or to boost the economy is to control the virus. I think this is the big lesson that we've learned. It's going to be very hard to control Omicron, as we all know. And so 
it looks as if it's going to go through us and through us really quite quickly in the UK. So I don't expect there to be a, a, you know, a huge amount of economic damage. The second big lesson we've learned is that economies are much better at adapting to the virus than they were in April 2020 when we lost a quarter of our economy in a month. When it came to Delta, we lost almost nothing. And so I wouldn't expect the numbers, the economic impact to be really devastating unless this wave was far worse for the health service than we currently are expecting. That is still unknown, but it's not going to be anything like as bad as the original wave uh, in April 2020. Well, Sarah, that leads to the question, is it going to be that bad for the health service? Because when we heard Chris Whitty and Boris Johnson and other medical professionals talk about this, like the fact is they just seem to not know. They know that Omicron is transmitting very quickly. And if you look at just Westminster, the fact that three members of the shadow cabinet were tested positive this week, MPs were dropping like flies and being pinged for and getting positive tests. So it is spreading very, very quickly. But what's your sense on how bad this is going to be for the health service? And essentially, is it going to be manageable with the Plan B restrictions, do you think? Well, I think there are genuinely and frustratingly still huge unknowns about that. And I think we'll know a lot more in a couple of weeks about whether in our own population, some of the signs we've seen in South Africa that lengths of stay in hospital have been significantly shorter, that a lot of the people in hospital were only incidentally found to have COVID and have not required oxygen treatment, All of that does give hope. But Chris Whitty, I noticed this week, was incredibly careful to play down any suggestion that this is a milder variant, you know, to to, to warn that there was still a lot of uncertainty about whether that South African picture will translate to our own much older population, albeit much more heavily vaccinated. And of course, you know, this, this does come at the worst possible time of year, for the health service. I noticed in the the latest sort of winter situation report that the NHS puts out every week, bed occupancy is already at 94%. So the margin for error here is very, very small. And clearly, these hospital admission figures are the ones that the government's advisors are probably watching more closely than any others, because if they do see signs that the health service could be overwhelmed, they are going to clearly put Boris Johnson under heavy pressure to go further with restrictions, despite all the massive political difficulties that were underlined, obviously, by the rebellion over the much milder restrictions this week, has shown would be very, very difficult to bring in, but they may yet be necessary. Now, Chris, obviously, the backdrop to all this has been the fact that even though we are not in lockdown and the plan B measures are limited, what we have is what the Labour Party has called lockdown by stealth. That The fact that so many people are getting coronavirus, everything is being cancelled and the FT has been full of reports of restaurants, theatres, cinemas, concerts, you name it, seeing widespread cancellations. People are getting nervous. They want to spend Christmas with their families. And this is leading to a big economic impact. And the Treasury is not 
offering any help and unfortunately Rishi Sunak's been in California this week trying to drum up um, support for British business um, on the, in the tech sector but the Treasury is very much saying we are not going to give more furlough support or more grants or loans to the um, hospitality sector. Do you see that budging and what do you make of that decision? I certainly see it budging, uh, at least at the margins. Uh, I would have thought that quite soon the Treasury might well at least suggest that some of the grants to local authorities might up the amount of grants to local authorities and suggest that these should be used to help the hospitality and the entertainment sector through the Omicron wave if we then, if we then at some point move into actual lockdown measures to slow the spread of the virus, then I'm sure that we'll then start talking about furlough again. But we won't talk about furlough in the meantime, because while the economy is actually pretty strong at the moment. Now, the other, of course, big economic news we had, Chris, this week was the rise in interest rates for the first time in, I think, the first time I can remember in quite some time that this decision came as a bit of a surprise to take 0.1 to 0.25. We were expecting a rate rise last month. It didn't happen. Why do you think the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England decided to do it now? And what does it say about where the economy is heading? I think it's very difficult to know exactly why they did it in December and not November, because if the, if you took their November reasoning, which was that there was a certain amount of uncertainty around in the economy, which meant they wanted to wait and see a bit, well, there's a, a hell of a lot of uncertainty around in the economy now. And that's why most people thought, even though the economic circumstances were clearly there for a rate rise, we've got inflation at 5.1% in November, going up to around 6% in April, and not likely to come down to the target of 2% very quickly quickly at all. So we've got an inflation problem now in the UK and we have very strong labour markets and it looks as if it's more persistent. There's no mention of the word transitory, temporary, transient, anything like that in the minutes of the Monetary Policy Committee meeting. And I think the uh, MPC in the end felt that even though there's a huge amount of uncertainty over Omicron, actually they probably made a bit of a mistake in November by not raising, not showing that they were serious about inflation. They really want to say, show they're serious now because what they don't want to happen is that for companies to think, yeah, everyone's raising their prices, we'll raise our prices as well. And for workers to say, well, look at this inflation. I've got to make sure that I get a pay rise, at least commensurate with the inflation rate, so that uh, I don't see my wages whittled away. And those two actions by companies and by workers, if they happen, would mean that inflation would uh, hang around a lot longer than we would like. Now, finally, Sarah, I think really the one thing our listeners are just going to want to know above we're recording this on the Friday, one week pretty much before Christmas, do you see any prospect of anything changing between now and Christmas? Or is the sense from the NHS and the health service that things will just remain steady at this point, but then if more measures are needed, they could come in after that? Yes, I think there is virtually zero chance of anything changing between now and Christmas. But I'll be watching that first week of January very, very closely because that is traditionally the worst week of the entire year for the NHS when people who've put off seeking care over the festive season or simply haven't been able to get it all present uh, in a big rush in that first week. I think, though, what the NHS is as the government has asked it to be, massively focused on uh, between now and Christmas, is the booster 
campaign. The NHS has been charged with this quite extraordinary national effort. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime of literally being told, do nothing but boosters and the most urgent of care. So I think there are signs that that effort is very seriously cranking up. I think there's enormous will on the NHS front line to achieve the government target. Personally, I think it will be touch and go whether the the promise that everyone will have the, the chance of a jab by the end of the month will be met. But if it isn't met, I think it will be met relatively early next month. And I think that is the, the get out of jail card, if you like, on which not just the government, but the NHS is completely focused now. Yes, and those booster numbers are extraordinary. We've had three quarters of a million jabs in one day, which again is a huge testament to the NHS ability to ramp up and get these jabs into arms when people have questioned that. But, you know, we've had plenty of fights between infections and injections, but this one feels like it's by far the most serious we've had so far. It really does. I mean, when you look at some of the data, the particularly alarming piece of data, I thought that if you've been double jabbed with AstraZeneca, as I have, for example, though I've also had my booster, you have basically zero protection against Omicron. You you desperately need that third dose. So as you say, Seb, I do think although we've seen many a a, a race between variant and uh, vaccine, this is the most consequential of, of the entire pandemic. Well, I should say, actually, thank you to the listeners who emailed in last week. I did manage to get a booster jab. A lot of people sent me some suggestions about where I could get one at a walking clinic, and I took those up. Finally, Chris, how are you feeling about the UK situation here, both with you, with your with your data and your economic hat on here? Because, as Sarah said, it is quite touch and go. And obviously, whenever you're optimistic in the face of coronavirus, it tends to always be sort of brought back down to reality. Do you think we'll get through the winter with Plan B? without further restrictions and the NHS collapsing? Or do you think it's inevitable that we will have to, you know, change the situation from where we're at at the end of December? I think it's inevitable that we're going to have to have some more restrictions at some point. But I don't think we're talking a lockdown like we saw last year. And I think, you know, the uncertainty is huge. But in the face of uncertainty, what we've learned is you need to act quite quickly. And so far, they, the government has acted quickly this time. One thing we know is it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I don't at the moment see it's going to be like last January, as bad as that. That is my guess, but it's a guess at the moment. Well, let's hopefully keep up that optimism. To end on a slightly positive note, I thought Chris Whitty, who said this week, the key thing to remember is every six months is better than the last six months. And that actually does seem to hold. That's something to hopefully get through the Christmas period. Well, Sarah and Chris, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. Now, this was meant to be an interview special, but as you've gathered, there's been a little bit of political news, so we thought we should deliver you a regular episode. But our two weeks of interview special start next week, and first up, we have the former Cabinet Minister, Andrew Mitchell, who will be reflecting on his career in Conservative politics from the Whip's office to Chief Whip. And after that, we'll be speaking to the legendary political documentary filmmaker, Michael Cocker, about his decades in interviewing politicians and what he's learned about power. And we'll be back in January with our regular instalment of Payne's Politics. But until then, if you've enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, to get episodes as soon as they're released. And you can leave us a positive review and a nice rating if you're feeling in the mood. 
Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Bean Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and we mean it this time, but from everyone at the Financial Times and the Payne's Politics team, we wish you a very merry and safe Christmas. 